Morning, everybody. <clears throat> I think that they, it's been adequately um, announced that we're, this is the last day of two services, um, but just to make sure to remind everybody of that. Also, <clears throat> um, no donuts. That, that's the price. Uh, since we don't have a ser two services between which we can have donuts, um, that's one of the losses that we have to suffer through in the summer. <clears throat> if you would find um, either on your device or um, your Bible, Psalm 139, like to read that entire psalm <clears throat> this morning. And <clears throat> while you are looking that up, just want to mention to you that some, I think, know, but this past Thursday, um, Pastor Dan Canoe's mother passed away in Billings very suddenly, unexpectedly. Um, there are uh, no, no plans yet um, that we can announce, but um, she knew the Lord, and that's the most important thing, was ready, um, and seemed to have in some conversations afterwards with friends and family some sense that she, even though she wasn't particularly ailing, just sensed the end was near. And so um, God does that. I don't have any question. So be in prayer, if you would, for Dan, especially um, during these days. Psalm 139. And I'm reading from the New Living Translation. This uh, particular psalm seems to be unusually uh, well translated. It, it just speaks clearly and simply to us. So beginning in verse 1, this is a psalm of David. O Lord, you have examined my heart and know everything about me. You know when I sit down or stand up. You know my thoughts even when I'm far away. You see me when I travel and when I rest at home, you know everything I do. You know what I am going to say, even before I say it, Lord. You go before me and follow me. You place your hand of blessing on my head. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too great for me to understand. I can never escape from your spirit, I can never get away from your presence. If I go up to heaven, you're there. If I go down to the grave, you are there. If I ride the wings of the morning, if I dwell by the farthest oceans, even there your hand will guide me and your strength will support me. I could ask the darkness to hide me and the light around me to become night, but even in darkness I cannot hide from you. To you, the night shines as bright as day. 
Darkness and light are the same to you. You made all the delicate inner parts of my body and knit me together in my mother's womb. Thank you for making me so wonderfully complex. Your workmanship is marvelous. How well I know it. You watched me as I was being formed in utter seclusion as I was woven together in the dark of the womb. You saw me before I was born. Every day of my life was recorded in your book. Every, every moment was laid out before a single day had passed. How precious are your thoughts about me, O God. They cannot be numbered. I cannot even count them. They outnumber the grains of sand. And when I wake up, you are still with me. O oh God, if only you would destroy the wicked. Get out of my life, you murderers. They blaspheme you. Your enemies misuse your name. O oh Lord, shouldn't I hate those who hate you? Shouldn't I despise those who oppose you? Yes, I hate them with total hatred, for your enemies are my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you and lead me along the path of everlasting life. This is a great psalm. Now, every psalm's a good psalm, but this is a top-ranked psalm. There are some tremendous truths here for us to ponder today. And that's what I want us to look at here. First broken down are three of, all of God's attributes are prominent, but three particular especially close to us attributes, characteristics, faculties that God has. And these attributes that I'll mention in a moment that are clearly here are meant both as, and can be used as, terror to the wicked, comfort to the righteous. They can be used both ways, but in this particular psalm, this is written to believers. This is written the praise of David, a believer. And what we have here is an attempt to comfort, surround us, assure us, uphold us. Why? Because it is it's part of our lot in life as believers that we will constantly be um, facing the darts of the wicked which are always aimed at slandering God to me. I feel at times, I spoke with, with you know, people throughout this past week who undergoing difficult times are um, set upon to believe God must have lost my address. 
I can't seem to find him. I try to pray, and my thoughts wander all over the place. My heart's heavy. I don't feel that there's any spiritual strength in me. I just am fatigued. I am overwhelmed, it seems, with all that's going on. It's in the middle of those kinds of times that we need to know at least these three attributes that are laid out here. The first one is, we call it, omniscience. God knows all. When we look here and see, you know when I sit down, you know when I stand up, you know when I go outside, you know when I rest in the house. You know my thoughts afar off. Further, you know what I am going to say before I say it. That's how, by the way, God knows to just that quick little tap, don't say that. Anybody ever had that? <laughs> don't say that. Everybody has. And often, we blow through that red light and say something. And then we, usually then, we find out why God told us not to say it before we said it. Because I'm cleaning up some mess. <laughs> I am then maybe even asking the same God who told me not to say it to help me put the fire out um, that got started because I said it. He knows what I'm going to say before I even say it. Now, think about the fact the immensity and the awesomeness of God. There are seven billion and counting people in this world. I can't grasp that. That seven billion people, he knows every one of them. He knows their names. He knows their heart fears. He knows their hopes. He knows their background. He knows their thoughts of seven billion people. He knows the words before seven billion people say them. That's a pretty big God. I'm not going to escape from him. I'm not going to do something undercover and he won't find out about it. But the comforting thing is he knows. He knows ahead of time. Nothing catches him off guard. That which surprises me never surprises him. He's prepared for it. And in hidden ways, often prepares me for it. But he knows. There's nothing God doesn't know. A simple little definition of a number of them for omniscience is God knows everything knowable. But still doesn't help us very much to get a handle on what he knows. He knows. Second, after being comforted that he knows, starting in the seventh verse, we see a second attribute of God. 
omnipresence. That means God is everywhere in all of his fullness. There's no, there's no, nothing about God that isn't present everywhere all the time. I will shorten um, the account I gave this morning, um, but I, I love history and have read a lot about the Antarctic exploration that took place back in the early, early 1900s. Um, a race between the Norwegians and the British, mostly. Um, but what brings it to my mind was just a few weeks ago, it was in the news that Ernest Shackleton's ship, the Endurance, was discovered um, down in the Antarctic underneath the ice sheet where it has been resting and is perfectly preserved. Um, the, the name, the endurance, is just as clear as a bell. On, it's so cold and it's deep that it's preserved. And in 1911, 12, in through there, when exploration was at its highest, uh, Shackleton's voyage um, partly sponsored by the British, the government. Uh, but it was a little bit um, shorted because even in the 12, 1912, 13, um, when that took place, war clouds were gathering for World War I. So he was really cut short um, getting enough money to cover his voyage. But at any rate, they got down there, they got into... Um, ice and then the ice enclosed them and they drifted for months and months hoping that it would eventually eventually get them out um, and the ice would break up but it wasn't to be the ship was crushed wooden sailing ship crushed they had enough time to get as many things off of as they could and it went to the bottom and they were on an ice flow no way to tell anybody because they didn't have the communication that we have today. No one knew it. They couldn't tell anybody. They couldn't ask anybody for help. Just the supplies they were able to get off the ship and then as many seals as they could catch in which they, they both ate uh, the blubber and burned the blubber to cook the blubber. Um, appetizing. Ate their dogs they were in dire, dire, dire straits. They drifted far enough northward that the ice flow began to break up, which was good and bad. <clears throat> bad because they had less and less to stand on. But they also salvaged three lifeboats off of the ship. And they had spent their time getting those as ready as they could for open sea. And they had saved some fabric of sails, and so they made sails, and they got ready. And so when the ice finally broke up and they drifted north enough, close to the um, southern tip of South America, water warmed a bit, um, now they faced having to get 28 men into these three 
small lifeboats, keep them seaworthy, be able to sail them, and they were at least 800 miles from a whaling station that, um, that they knew of that was run, I believe, by the British. They managed to navigate that whole 800 miles in horrible seas with three little lifeboats, never lost soul, and very limited um, navigational tools. And they managed to get to the wrong side of the tip of South America. The whaling station was on the west side. They ended up driven by the weather to the east side. They, before that, they did come onto an uninhabited island where they offloaded two ships to the boats and the residents of those boats. They built shelters by flipping them over and they just said, the one ship, Shackleton, few other guys, we're going to go get help. We'll be back, I promise. It took them almost a year to get back. But at any rate, they took off in this final lifeboat and came around to the east side, wanting to be on the west. And they landed on shore. Shackleton chose just two other men. And the three of them set out, and they had to go across this long spine of South America that ended in this tip. There was a high mountain range, only way they could get over it, to the west side. They started, they were, their feet were frostbitten. They had none of the kind of equipment we have today. They had rotting reindeer leather fur boots that were shot. And they were climbing over this mountain range. And just the three of them. They got to the top. It took them several days. They only had a little tiny bit of food that they carried with them. And then, then they got over the tip and the divide and began to head down. And on this night that they had no food left, they hadn't eaten now for a couple days, they, were, they had to make it this day or they would perish. And they came to a long, long snow field, long slopings um, that ended in darkness because it was getting dark and they didn't know what, and they had to get off the mountain or they'd freeze. So they decided the only thing we can do is the three of us will sit down behind each other, wrap our legs around, and we'll be a human toboggan and we'll just, we don't know if we'll go off into a crevasse, we don't know if we'll go off a cliff, we don't know, but we have to get out of here. They slid probably when at least they estimated 1,500 feet in elevation, they dropped and just came to a nice, slow, soft stop. They didn't know that they were, if they'd gone too much further, they would have gone off a cliff, but they made it. They kept walking, got to the edge of kind of a valley, could see lights, got, finally got in there about midnight and were rescued. They immediately put together a rescue. They went and got the guys on the east side that they left, and then they went to Elephant Island, and everyone survived, unheard of. Every, no one died. But in his journal, when he, when Shackleton wrote an account of all this, 
more than once, especially in that last desperate climb over the mountain to try to get to the whaling station, they, he wrote in his journal that he said, the three of us were unmistakably aware of a fourth with us, marching over that mountaintop, sliding down that unknown slope, they, they repeatedly said, someone else was with us. That's the omnipresence of God. You can't get away from him. And when no one knows where you are, no human can help you, God's there. I'll never leave you or forsake you. The third attribute that we see here begins in verse 13. It's omnipotence, which is all-powerful, meaning, very simply, God can do anything he purposes to do. Create, doesn't matter, whatever. This describes a child being formed in the womb. You made all the delicate inner parts of my body and knit me together in my mother's womb. Thank you for making me so wonderfully complex. Older versions have this famous phrase, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. You watched me as I was being formed in utter seclusion, as I was woven together in the dark of the womb. You saw me before I was born. Every day of my life was recorded in your book. Every moment was laid out before a single day had passed. There are several references here to a Hebrew term that spoke to embroidery. I've not gotten deeply into embroidery. But it has to do with fine needlepoint, persistent and, and very complex creation. It's that word that God describes his involvement in the shaping and the forming of a child in the womb. And then goes on to say, not only his omnipotence, but his omniscience. He knows every day of that child's life is written in my book before one of them is lived before birth now what does that tell us among other things it tells us that in spite of the greatness of God his omniscience his omnipotence his everywhere presence he still honors free will of the human being, even the wicked being. He will honor them. Now, he'll judge it, but he will, he, he will permit wicked humans to interrupt the life he's creating. He will allow that. 
Because we wonder, if, if all the days are written in my book, and then that's interrupted, and it is stilled, where's God's will at? He allows people their free will. He will, he will judge them in a way that's indescribable, and under, we can't understand it. He will judge them. But it brings to mind the awful, hellish wickedness of interrupting what God's creating, what he's weaving. And we take it upon ourselves because we say we don't want that, that we terminate it. Now, There are times, and David experienced them, just a few psalms earlier in another one of David's psalms. He specifically asked God. He asked it with a, not a bad attitude because God didn't re, retort against him. But he said, Lord, how long do the wicked triumph? How long will you let them get away with all this? I feel that. I think every one of us feel that. But we go back to the earlier attributes. He knows all things, which also includes wisdom. He knows how, what to permit, what not to permit. And his overarching aim is that none perish. So he waits and lets people get away with things. Because he's still after doing his best to redeem them. And we have plenty of cases in our own lives. People we know who have been in utter rebellion against God. But he got to their heart. It may have taken him decades. But he just kept talking, kept talking, kept talking. They turned from their wicked ways. God forgave them restored them, used them. We, we look at, quickly, David, the writer of this psalm, schemed the murder of the husband of the woman he committed adultery with. He repented in Psalm 51. God restored him. And here he's writing this. Moses killed a man. Think of Paul. I don't know, I, I'm dead sure that the New Testament church had some prayer meetings. Lord, why don't, you, why don't you get rid of that guy? Because Paul said, I took men and their wives and children and I bound them and I took them before trials and he said, I cast my vote that they be Stoned. Paul wrote half the New Testament. That's why God waits. I have to remind myself that. 35, 40 times a day. I, I want 
I want them to get it today. But I'm always reminded, if God had adopted that same attitude, I wouldn't be here. He was merciful, long-suffering, patient with me and with all of us. And I'm grateful that God didn't adopt my suggested attitude that he ought to have. He waits. I don't understand all that, but I don't have to because I know he does. He knows. Then, I think, in the latter part of this psalm, after these three great attributes of God, David rejoices here in 17. How precious, really, are you to me when I think about all this? How much I love you, Lord, because of who you are. That's the desired intention of the first part of the psalm. There are a number of Bible scholars who feel, and I don't happen to, and we're not talking about liberal Bible scholars here, but some conservative, very reverent toward Scripture people wonder about such a um, wrenching shift in gears here from how great God is, how good he is, and so forth, to verse 10. Oh, Lord, I wish you'd kill this wicked. I wish you'd destroy him. I hate them. They're enemies of me just like they're enemies of you. And some feel that this might even have been part of a, another psalm that somehow got cobbled together with this, which I don't believe. I think David is displaying the greatness of God and it wells up within his heart how much he loves God for who he is. And then he automatically turns to the great host of the majority of people who hate this God, who rebel against this God, who despise him, fight against him, trample his truth. As one of the other Psalms say about his word, they cast your word behind them. No use for it. I think David is overwhelmed with his own love of God, and then so overwhelmed with the stunning wickedness of people who would despise this God. Now, some get worked up. Some people feel like David might have just gotten himself on the, off the rails um, in, in these last few comments, but that goes against the doctrine of inspiration. The Holy Spirit, David, in near the end of his life, said, my tongue is the pen of a ready writer. He said, the Spirit of the Lord spoke through me. So we have to always be mighty careful critiquing what God told some man to write. If we understand it right, when David said, I, I hate them with a perfect hatred or a complete hatred, it, mean, it does not mean any more than the same words when God uses them. God says, I hate the wicked. I hate the evildoers. What's he saying there? We know he loves them because he spares them. He means that 
though I want to save them, if they will, everything they're about, everything they do, all their values, all their endeavors, all their wishes, all their plots, I despise them. I hate them. I have nothing to do with them. That's what David is saying. He's aligning with God, saying, as much, Lord, as you abhor that, you're angry with the wicked every day, so also am I. I'll have nothing to do with it. No condoning of it, no participation in it, no winking the eye at it, no covering it, no trying to pretend, well, it's not that bad. I will, I will line up with you, Lord. What you say is wicked and evil and hateful, I agree. Your enemies, he said, will be my enemies. I'm lined up with God. That's what David is saying here. Then, I think, as a caution, there's the little prayer he prays at the close. That even when we are, and I, I think you'll understand me, I think when we are vigilant for God, when I see, well, I'll just, just comes to my mind, I mentioned it uh, earlier this morning, it struck me as Senator Schumer talking about the potential of overturning uh, Roe v. Wade. He declared, he said, that would be an abomination. Unbelievable. To use the very word that God would use towards what we're trying to stop. It's an abomination. I look at that and I don't think pleasant thoughts towards Chuck. But the closing verse of the psalm, I think, recognizes that and is a caution because David said, Lord, search my heart, know my thoughts, and if there's anything in my heart that offends you, tell me. That's being careful that though I despise sin like God does, I also have to look at the redemption of that soul, which glorifies God. I have to keep God's attitude. Now, this to me, this psalm, to me is one of the most comforting psalms. Even in these days today, where we, we feel overwhelmed, I think, everything's coming at us, the world's a mess. It's not like things have just been calm water. But this seems to be a, an acute time, at least in our culture and the world we are focused on. It is a comfort. God knows. He knows everything. He knows. He prompts things. He arranges things. He knows. He's everywhere. I can never be alone. I don't care what I may feel like. I'm not alone. God said, I'm right here. I won't leave you. And finally, he's omnipotent. He's going to win. He's all-powerful. The world isn't. The devil's not. Sin's not. God isn't going anywhere. He's seated forever on his throne. And he's going nowhere.
that gives me hope, comfort, and cheer, even in dark days. This God is our God. He will be our guide, even unto death, and never fail us. Let's bow our heads. Dan, if you'll come and dismiss us with prayer. Father in heaven, as I sat and listened this morning, it struck me it's good to know you, but it's good to know who you are. It's good to know your attributes so we find comfort and peace and assurance in those and knowing that you know everything and that you're with us no matter what we're going through and that you're powerful enough to make a difference. But knowing that, Lord, should shake us a bit as well. If we're not walking in the light, these things that we found out about you this morning are, should cause us to tremble. So help us to allow you to do exactly like David said, to search our hearts, to know our thoughts, and to reveal to us if there's anything offensive in the way we are living our lives here on this side of heaven. Because knowing that you know everything that we're going through, because you're there with us, and if we'll surrender our will to you, there's nothing you can't accomplish. Father, may those things rest on us today. When we look at the way the world is and we, we want to lash out and take control and hate in a tainted way, help us to keep your heart. Help us to have your eyes, your ears, and your heart for people that we know that we were once blind just like them and now we can see and that people would experience the salvation of the, of the Lord through Jesus Christ. Lord, reveal to us today where we're at with you because we need to know in all that we do. And then when you do, help us as always, Lord, just to be obedient, to come in line with what you've laid on our hearts, remembering who you are again, that you'll give us the grace to live out what you've laid on our hearts. And may we do all of that to your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Love you guys. You are dismissed, everyone.